to episode 76 of the Truth Quest podcast, the truth about hate speech. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you are on social media and topics such as hate speech, Trump derangement syndrome, Edward Snowden, California wildfires, white privilege, or impeachment comes up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and podbean.com. The video version of the podcast are available on YouTube, BitChute, and Brighton.com. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through Facebook advertising. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com. Finally, please join the conversation at Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. If you pay the slightest bit of attention to the news, nationally or locally, you've likely noticed a movement to squash speech. Sometimes it's subtle, such as a gentle reminder from your spouse not to bring up a particular topic at the family gathering lest you offend Uncle Pete. However, what is happening with more frequency is mass censorship of speech under the guise of calling it hate speech. Recently, New York City passed a law or ordinance fining people $250,000 if they say the words illegal alien, because after all, their twisted illogic claims that it's hateful to call someone who broke the law illegal, and I'm sure they frown upon the term alien for an equally lame brain reason. Or how about a recent survey by College Pulse that found 55% of U.S. university students support punishing people who wear highly offensive Halloween costumes? Or how about the brainless one, Joe Behard, from The View, openly asked why someone cannot be charged with hate speech? Perhaps, Joy, because there is no such thing as a law against hate speech in America. I'm sorry, but there are a handful of public figures with whom I hold with high level of disdain, and she is high on that list. Or college campuses across America where they have free speech zones and restricted speech codes. We have new terms like trigger warnings, which are issued so students are aware that a speaker is likely to elicit negative emotional response, and or the speaker is likely to commit microaggressions, another new term, which is racially insensitive or sexist comments. Basically anything not politically correct. John Whitehead, writing for the Rutherford Institute, put it this way, quote, We have seen the caging of free speech in recent years through the use of so-called free speech zones on college campuses and at political events. The requirement of speech permits in parks and community gatherings and the policing of online forums, end quote. Heaven forbid that our young people head off to a supposed institution of higher education and be taught, as Fire President Greg Lusinoff says, the intellectual habits that promote debate, discussion, and tolerance for views we hate, humility, and general pluralism, end quote. Wow. Imagine a university campus that actually promoted tolerance, humility, and diversity rather than intolerance of views outside what Tom Woods calls the 3 by 5 card of allowable opinion. The First Amendment was designed to protect the minority against the majority, but what we are seeing with hate speech is the necessity to protect the majority from the minority. It's very strange. We are led to believe that you don't have the right to express yourself if certain people or groups don't like or agree with what you're saying. 
we've gone from freedom of speech to freedom from speech that I don't like or that I find offensive. What is usually missing from these conversations, because thoughts like the one I'm about to proclaim are considered hateful in and of themselves, what is usually missing from these conversations is you do not have the right in America to always feel comfortable. As a matter of fact, if the country is functioning as intended, you will likely become uncomfortable on a regular basis if you engage in any discourse whatsoever. It's actually a beautiful thing. As we will flush out as the episode progresses, the hate speech proclamations are almost always a left-wing driven agenda. I can't think of a single instance where a right-leaning person, a conservative organization, or a libertarian personality has called for someone's speech to be silenced because it was hateful or offended them. Only leftists and fascists seek to silence the opposition's speech. I mean, I'm offended every time I hear someone pontificate about the virtues of abortion, but I don't want them silenced because their speech is hateful. I want them to keep spewing their infanticidal beliefs. I think I just made up a new word. Anyways, I want to allow people in the middle to hear how sick and twisted the pro-abortion logic is. So let's turn briefly to the First Amendment of the Constitution and see where it applies. According to former Vermont governor and presidential candidate before he strangely screamed on stage, and current purveyor of all things anti-Trump on cable news outlets Howard Dean, quote, hate speech is not protected by the First Amendment, end quote. Thank God he didn't become president. Let's examine the First Amendment and see if Mr. Dean is full of shit or full of truth. I'm leaning towards the former. The First Amendment does not exclude hate speech. It reads, Congress shall make no law respecting, and then it fills in the blank with, or abridging the freedom of speech. There's no caveats. That's it. That is the end of the discussion. Contrary to progressives' belief, the Constitution is not a living, breathing document. If you think it should prohibit so-called hate speech, Offer up an amendment, explain how it will be identified, who will identify it, and what the consequences are. See how that goes. Well, we know how that would go very badly. So the next best thing is to start illegally censoring speech of conservative voices. But I digress. Your right to free speech is not a right granted by government. Therefore, they do not have the power to take it away. It's a natural right protected by the U.S. Constitution and most states' constitutions. One area of clarification when it comes to the First Amendment is it is restricted to the federal government. That's what the words Congress shall make no law means. It does not say colleges shall make no rule or to abridge the freedom of speech, nor does it say private companies cannot abridge the freedom of speech. But there are a couple issues at play here. Number one, this is where the supremacy clause of the Constitution legitimately comes into play. You may recall from episode 75, The Truth About the Anti-Federalists, I used the example of the state of South Carolina passing a law restricting interstate commerce. Because that is a direct contradiction to the Constitution, it would be deemed unconstitutional. The same thing applies with free speech. If California passes a hate speech law, it is a direct contradiction to the Constitution and therefore null and void. However, a private company is not a government and in theory can restrict free speech of its employees. Same goes for private universities, with one looming caveat. If they receive any money from the federal government or their students receive any grants or loans from the federal government, they may run into some issues. This is where the short-sighted nature of our big government liberal and progressive friends comes back to bite them in the ass. They want the federal government involved in every aspect of our lives because we're too stupid to run our own lives, and they want power and control. As the saying goes, if you live by the federal government's involvement in every aspect of your life, 
you die by the federal government's involvement in every aspect of your life. An Obama administration isn't going to threaten any university with federal funding restrictions if they curtail free speech. But a Trump administration sure as hell might. Or maybe even a Republican-controlled Congress might take action against them and restrict funding. So the administrators of these schools have to make a decision when it comes to restricting free speech on campus. I realize that approaching left-wing infested topics such as this from a logical perspective is a fool's errand if I'm talking to a dyed-in-the-wool, closed-minded leftist who is not interested in approaching things logically. For them, it's all about emotions and making sure that there is no dissent. More on that in a minute. But for the majority of you, logic plays an important role in your decision-making. So let's apply a little logic to the issue of hate speech. For example, who gets to define it? And what is the definition? I think we would all agree that currently there is no universal definition of hate speech. More importantly, if we did desire such a thing, who would define it? Do you want me coming up with the definition? Do I want you? Do you want the current Democratic-controlled Congress coming up with it? Would you be comfortable if Trump and a Republican-controlled House and Senate came up with it? What about that radical Christian Vice President Mike Pence? Or a future President Bloomberg or President Warren in a Democratically-controlled House and Senate? Any clear-thinking person would agree with the following sentiment by Twitter handle Iowa Hawk. Quote, I'll let you ban hate speech when you let me define it. Deal? Ken White, writing for the Los Angeles Times, said, quote, The big problem for proponents of hate speech laws and codes is that they never explain where to draw a stable and consistent line between hate speech and vigorous criticism, or who exactly can be trusted to draw it. The reason is that there is no such line. End quote. The United Kingdom has long outlawed the publication of materials calculated to stir up racial hatred. In Germany, it is a serious crime to display a swastika or other Nazi symbols. Holocaust denial is punished in many countries. Canada has no free speech. They regularly charge people with hate speech-related crimes. The illogic of advocating for a heckler's veto or to invoke democracy in the same sentence as hate speech is far from logical. We are dealing with an ever-changing, malleable standard. What's unpopular today, what's allowable today, won't be the same tomorrow. Democracy implies mob rule. 50 plus 1% is all it takes. For the hundredth time, the United States is not a democracy. Why do people constantly make such a claim? If you have listened to any number of TruthQuest podcast episodes, you know that I hold a particular level of disdain for the centuries-long activism of the Supreme Court. I published two episodes on Roe v. Wade, episodes 46 and 47. I did another episode on the Supreme Court itself, episode 16. I did one on Obamacare, that was episode 14. And I did another one on the Bill of Rights and the Incorporation Doctrine, episode 37. Anyways, one of the points I try to drive home in every discussion about the Supreme Court is to explain what their work product is. Opinions, not rulings, not decisions, not legal dictates. Opinions, which like the old adage says, are like assholes. Everyone's got one, and they all stink. And let me tell you, the Supreme Court has published some real shit-stained opinions over the last 200 years. But since the Supreme Court exists, and since liberals love to quote the court's opinions when they jive with their policy prescriptions, I figured we'd take a quick look at some Supreme Court opinions about free speech to provide further evidence and bolster my claim that hate speech is complete and utter bullshit, at least in the United States. In 1969, there was a case called Brandenburg v. Ohio. 
At issue was the Ku Klux Klan leader's inflammatory speech urging listeners to take revenge on racial minorities. The court held that it did not constitute an incitement of lawlessness and was therefore constitutionally protected. The court announced a new standard to govern speech, setting a much higher bar for what could be punished by the government. Speech that is, quote, directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action is likely to incite or produce such action, end quote. So to me, that seems dangerously vague. And, and honestly, where the hell does the Supreme Court get off making up these standards out of thin air? No one ever asked that question. These people are not legislators. Why do we allow them to legislate from the bench? Their standard is shit. Think about think about someone burning a Quran, or what about the artists in France that mocked Muhammad and Islamic terrorists murdered them? Were those killers incited to conduct imminent lawless action? In 1975, there was a case, Ernstonich v. Jacksonville. Quote, the money quote is, quote, The Constitution does not permit the government to decide which types of of otherwise protected speech are sufficiently offensive to require protection from an unwilling viewer or listener. Rather, the burden normally falls upon the viewer to avoid further bombardment of his sensibilities simply by averting his eyes." End quote. 1989, Texas v. Johnson. This is the famous flag-burning case. The money quote from this opinion reads, quote, If there is a bedrock principle underlying the First Amendment, it is that the government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because society finds the idea itself offensive or disagreeable. End quote. In 1992, the court unanimously struck down a St. Paul, Minnesota law that banned displaying a symbol that, quote, arouses anger, alarm, or resentment in others on the basis of race, color, creed, religion, or gender, end quote, i.e. burning a cross. In 2001, Snyder v. Phelps. This is the Westboro Baptist Church case where these loon bags go to soldiers' funerals and essentially picket, claiming that they died because God is punishing the U.S. because it's tolerance of homosexuality. The court did not fine for the plaintiff, essentially allowing these so-called church members to continue their picketing of funerals despite the utter distaste, distasteful and, dare I say, hateful intentions. As the Supreme Court put it, quote, the First Amendment guarantee of free speech does not extend only to categories of speech that survive an ad hoc balancing of relative social costs and benefits. The First Amendment itself reflects a judgment by the American people that the benefits of its restrictions on the government outweigh the costs, end quote. So maybe you're thinking, okay, I get what you're saying about the logic of the hate speech debate, and I understand what the Supreme Court has opined over the decades, but, but what about, well, let's look at some of these whatabouts. The truth is, there are narrow exceptions to the First Amendment's protection laid out by the Supreme Court, including unlawful incitement, true threats, intimidation, or discriminatory harassment. Some of these carefully defined exceptions encompass speech that might be identified as hate speech. Okay, so we get that, but what about fighting words? Aren't they restricted? Well, years ago, the Supreme Court recognized a very narrow First Amendment exception for fighting words. And it's limited to in-person, face-to-face insults directed at a particular person that's likely to provoke a violent response from that person. It doesn't apply broadly to offensive speech, even though it's often invoked to justify censoring such speech. Well, what about the threat of violence over a speaker coming to a venue or a campus? Well, this is the heckler's veto I mentioned a few minutes ago. And of course, this is not a valid reason for limiting speech, hateful or otherwise. 
Either the Constitution is worth protecting or it's not. The community should rally around or against protesters who are trying to disrupt speakers, hateful or otherwise, which is why these cowards only rally on college campuses and in places where the local law enforcement allows them to wreak havoc, like in Portland, Oregon. You start shutting down speakers in middle America and you get your ass handed to you. What if someone burns a Koran or the Confederate flag or the U.S. flag or a Bible, which can cause violence by someone opposed to or offended by those acts? You can keep going on and on with as many of these hypotheticals as you want because, let me tell you, once you define any of these as hate speech and begin limiting by force of law, the list will only grow. Don't you dare desecrate the Communist Manifesto or a copy of Sololinsky's Rules for Radicals, or heaven forbid you tear up or burn a Planned Parenthood pamphlet. Hate speech is protected speech, period. End of story. Someone's potential reaction to hateful expressions such as this is no reason to limit it. What about shouting fire in a crowded theater? Surely you would agree that that type of speech should be restricted. First of all, I'm not advocating that free speech is absolute. We've already discussed face-to-face -face incitement or threats as one of the areas where speech can be limited or punished. When it comes to shouting fire in a theater, number one, this is a usually misquoted line attributed to Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes in the context of a 1919 case. It was never a statement of law, nor a description of an actual case before the court. Even the most rigorous protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. The key word there is falsely. Number two, in the context of this episode about hate speech, shouting fire in a theater is not hateful. However, if done under false pretenses, is punishable under tort law because it knowingly causes a reaction based on the circumstances. Fire in a crowded theater means certain death for anyone who remains in their seat. Listening to or reading words that offend you, your religion, your country, your race, your sensibilities, or your mama do not lead to bodily harm. You have choices. You can ignore it, refute it, laugh at it, mock it, or question it, but you in no way are forced to flee and hurt yourself or others in the process. A quotation attributed to Aristotle articulates it this way, It is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. If someone points at you in a crowd of people and berates you as being different and worthy of scorn, and that incites the crowd to cause bodily harm, that speaker is not guilty of hate speech. He's guilty of a crime, inciting a mob. By the way, two can play at this, but what about game? Is calling Trump supporters Nazis and deplorables hate speech? What about so-called comedian Kathy Gifford holding a bloody Trump head? Is that hate speech? Or when conservative Laura Ingram was called a cunt by the liberal jackass talking head Ed Schultz. Seems pretty hateful to me. What about anti-Semitic, anti-Christian, and anti-conservative views that are freely expressed? Or all the hate spewed at the police? What about the hate speech towards babies in the womb? Would the advocates of hate speech laws and limitations include any of this type of speech in their hate bucket? I mean, do you really want to go down that road where you not only kill the First Amendment, but you subject the country to an ever-meandering definition? So what's the truth about all this talk about hate speech? If there is an ounce of intellectual honesty in this debate, hate speech would be called what it is, affirmative action for the furtherance of liberal and progressive policy prescriptions. As I have often said on this podcast, these folks cannot win the argument on its merits, whether it's socialism, climate change, abortion on demand, welfare spending, expansive regulations, minimum wage, higher taxes, the denigration of success and wealth. 
In order to further their agenda, they lie, cheat, and steal. And one of their cheating techniques is the stifling of debate by silencing dissent through the use of hate speech regulations. These regulations are simply censorship for people who are too lazy to come up with worthwhile rebuttals of speakers who state opinions that they do not hold themselves. The proper response to the expression of obnoxious or offensive views is to counter them with better views in the marketplace of ideas, not to censor or silence them or charge them with a crime. What are these people afraid of? Could it be the truth? Their policy prescriptions are so unpopular that they resort to silencing those who refute their beliefs. The adage, free speech for me but not for thee, explains this issue better than anything I can come up with. While we are speaking of truth, the truth is you do not have a right not to be offended. Or put another way, in America, people have a right to be offensive, but there is no similar right to not be offended, insulted, or uncomfortable because of someone's speech, regardless how offensive and insulting that speech is. Glenn Harlan Reynolds, writing in the USA Today, put it this way, quote, all speech is equally protected whether it's hateful or cheerful. It doesn't matter if it's racist, sexist, or in poor taste unless speech falls into a very narrow categories like true threats, which have to address a specific individual, or incitements, which must constitute an immediate and intentional encouragement to an imminent lawless action. It's protected. The term hate speech was invented by people who don't like that freedom and who want to give the completely false impression that there's a kind of speech that the First Amendment doesn't protect because it's hateful. What they mean by hateful, it seems, is really just that it's speech they don't agree with. Some even try to argue that since hearing disagreeable ideas is unpleasant, expressing those ideas is somehow an act of violence, end quote. Allowing a centralized authority to regulate not just what one is allowed to say, but what one is allowed to hear is at best imprudent, at worst anti-American and anti-Constitution. What these people are really advocating for are government censors. To these folks, I would suggest that they renounce their U.S. citizenship if they have it, and move to Canada or Europe, and they will get their wish. The principled stance is to ardently protect speech that we hate even more than the speech we agree with. Voltaire put it this way, Quote, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. End quote. The offended class in society can no longer rely on the age-old peer pressure to snuff out offensive language and or costumes. They demand the force of government or institutions like universities. Government is the answer to every liberal question. There are poor people in society. Get the government involved. Kids need a good education. Get the government involved. Workers are being forced to put in long hours. Get the government involved. There are people who think we shouldn't kill babies. Get the government involved. There are people who think changing the definition of marriage is a bad idea. Get the government involved. There are people who believe socialized medicine is a bad idea. Get the government involved and shove it down their throats. Kids are getting sick from vaping. Get the government involved. Some people make more money than others. Get the government involved. Some people discriminate. Get the government involved. The pattern is rather obvious for anyone who is the least bit open-minded. To tie a bow on this topic, consider a slightly modified adage that your mother likely said to you at some point. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but hateful, offensive, insulting speech will never hurt me. Please join the conversation at Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Podcast.